You're listening to the Namely Marley podcast, episode number 45. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. I'm your host, Marley. The goal of this podcast is to focus on adding a little creative, healthy, and passion-filled living to your day every day. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Diana Fleischman. She's Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Portsmouth, and she's also a blogger. I've been racking my brain trying to think of how I could tell you that I first learned about Diana. I want to think that it was a tweet that somebody sent. I like Obviously, I follow somebody and they tweeted something that she wrote, and I was very intrigued by it because she was uh, talking a little bit in her post about veganism and a, a kind of a different approach to veganism than I had seen before. And I, of course, you know, I really like that topic of how we can expand the movement and be more inclusive rather than... Uh, this kind of exclusive club that we have here. And so uh, that's kind of the approach that she had. And I really enjoyed, um, I don't know, her take on veganism. And I thought I wanted to share that with you as well. And, you know, I've been vegan for a long time now. And I live in the Midwest. So I kind of feel like I've been sheltered, at least particularly in my early years as a vegan, I was sheltered a lot from what I consider to be the fringe movements in the vegan world, some kind of um, ultra vegans, I guess I would say people who are I guess I would kind of clarify them as really dogmatic about their beliefs as far as veganism is concerned. And I mean, I hate to say this, but sometimes it feels like veganism can almost be its own religion. And I'm not a religious person. And so I just definitely don't enjoy that side of veganism. In fact, um, I talked with John Joseph uh, when he was doing a, a book tour for his uh, book, Meat is for Pussies. And, and we talked a little bit about this. He actually said in his book that he doesn't even call himself a vegan for this very reason, because sometimes there's this this dogma that goes along with the word and you can easily feel dragged down by all of that. And I want you to know, I have definitely felt that. And I have definitely had times where I've thought, I don't know that I want to continue to use that word because it's, it can send a, you know, mixed bag of meaning to a lot of different people. But the thing is, I really like the word and it, I feel like it reflects the way I eat and you know, what I really want to do is kind of grab it away from that fringe movement and have it be a positive word that we are all thrilled to be using. So, uh, you know, let the outliers be the outliers, but um, let's uh, make vegan something that's a little bit more um, inclusive and something that a lot of people can feel like they want to be a part of. In fact, it's one of the reasons I wrote my post called 10 Ways to Be Vegan, because I've talked with so many people who are so interested in a vegetarian or vegan diet, and yet they feel a little overwhelmed. And they kind of are worried about the kind of personal changes that they feel would take 24-7, you know, commitment, or they feel like, you know, they can make certain changes in certain circumstances, but maybe not in others. And they also feel this, you know, um, maybe judgment they might feel from other people who are vegan. So I think those are some really important things to think about. You know, I feel like if we have this notion that it's all or nothing, it's just too difficult to, to sustain. And in fact, I mean, honestly, you're going to hear in today's discussion that it's a very intelligent discussion about this complicated nuance of a vegan diet. In fact, Diana mentions like some new definitions and terms for, you know, basically what you could call an animal cruelty-free diet. And honestly, that's such a 
I probably didn't even say that right because animal cruelty, it's really impossible to be 100% animal cruelty free. If you think about it, I think I've mentioned this before on previous podcasts where the crops that you consume could have resulted in the death of field mice or things like that. I mean, so you can really get down to this nitty gritty and just feel overwhelmed with all of that. I feel like there are some people who just want to draw a line in the sand. And I just don't think that that line exists. I think it's very complicated. And Diana beautifully points this out in today's show. So do you think maybe you're interested in a vegan or vegetarian diet, but you don't really want to make all those drastic changes? You are going to love today's show because Diana mentions a very intriguing way that you can participate in efforts to reduce animal cruelty while at the same time having the impact of, let's say, 50 vegans while continuing to consume animal products. Uh, are you intrigued now? Did that you know, pique your curiosity? And if you are willing to make some changes to your diet, but you don't want to go, I'm going to put this in air quotes, whole hog vegan, <laughs> Diana talks about a couple of changes that you can make to your diet, tweaks that will allow you to have this, uh, you know, the equivalency of like a 90% vegan. Again, this is while also continuing to consume some animal products. So um, I just think you're going to find today's discussion so intriguing. I know that I did, and I... I'm really curious to hear what you think about it after you uh, listen to today's show. I truly enjoyed this discussion and I hope you will too. So let's get straight to it. Here's today's feature interview with Dr. Diana Fleischman. Hey everyone, I'm happy to have Diana Fleischman. She's Associate Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Portsmouth. And she's also a blogger and she's with me today. Diana, welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. Hi Marley, nice to be with you. Oh, I'm so glad to have you on the show. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you because, well, you know, I just feel like I've read some of your posts, first of all. So it's so funny how you can have these relationships with people online that you don't even know. <laughs> and I've just been so intrigued by the things that you've been writing about vegan diets and, and just the definitions of veganism, and all that. And I'm really looking forward to it. But before we get into all of that, I mean, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, I was wondering if you could give everybody a little bit of background about yourself so they can get to know you as well. Sure. I went to, um, well, I was born in Brazil and I grew up near Atlanta. So people think I'm from England, but I'm, I'm not. I grew up near Atlanta. I did my PhD in Austin, Texas. And that's also where I became uh, vegan. So I became vegan f later in life than some people. I was 27 and I essentially didn't really want to. I was trying to eat humanely raised foods for some time. And then I read Animal Liberation and I went vegan the next day. So I went from eating meat to being vegan in one day. Wow. And in Austin, Texas, there is a really big and supportive and welcoming vegan community. There's tons of vegan restaurants. And mm -hmm. so that was a really good place for me to, to become vegan. And I started hanging around with people there. Uh, but they actually thought I was some kind of undercover I don't know, FBI or something, because I've always had sort of a very rational uh, perspective on it. I've never been puritanical. And I still, uh, to this day, I don't really find meat and, and other kind of animal products viscerally disgusting in the way that other people do. And I study disgust. So it's kind of interesting that I'm somebody who doesn't really have much of it. Now, I think that's an interesting topic to study disgust. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So disgust is a very 
it's 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 an, obviously all emotions are sort of ancient, but disgust is something that really separates us from non-human animals. A lot of people try to say that uh, non-human animals and, and humans really have very little that they don't have in common, but the actual signaling of that something is disgusting to others socially is really not done. And even in non-human primates, they don't have a disgust facial expression, and they don't avoid cues of disease the same way that that we do. Um, so, yeah, so disgust is really interesting from that perspective, but disgust is also interesting because it regulates what we eat. So as humans, we, you know, people all around the world eat very different things. Some people eat mealyworms, some people eat liver, some people eat dairy. I mean, it's, it's funny in China where they actually eat a lot of insects and seahorses and other kinds of animals that we wouldn't really consider edible. They think eating dairy is really disgusting. Um, I have this friend who's from New Zealand who lived there and they just thought it was appalling when she took out cheese at her lunch. So what happens is there's a sensitive period in which we find out what is really okay to eat when we're very young. Anything that your parents put in front of you and they look on approvingly, you will eat. And then after a certain sensitive period, you become sort of crystallized and your palate, the kinds of things that you eat, uh, become pretty much set. And so I think that's one thing that's really important for us to understand as scientists is that it's very difficult for people to change their diets, even if it would save their lives, because they have this crystallization of their food preferences that happens at two, three years of age. Interesting. That's almost a little bit like languages too, right? Like, I mean, my yeah. understanding is you're exposed to different languages. And after a certain age, you can't even hear some sounds in other languages. Yes. It, it, yeah, you have a period. Exactly. And these are all things that, you know, have helped humans become wildly successful, that humans can uh, occupy the entire world. But, you know, Jared Diamond talked about this, that I think it was Vikings who settled a, a new colony and they didn't eat fish. They had a taboo about eating fish, a food taboo. And they would they all died because they, they wouldn't eat fish. So uh, it is very interesting how pervasive this uh, this disgust response to novel foods is. Oh, cool. So it is an interesting thing to study then. I mean, it's it sounds so uh, simplistic and the just the sound of the word, but hearing you describe it, I can see where it is this very, you know, meaty topic. Yeah. <laughs> it also keeps people from being, um, I think it also prevents people from becoming vegan. I mean, my mother was very sweet and decided to do a month vegan following Colleen Patrick Goudreau's really good guide, you know, a month vegan. And, uh, she had very few things that she would eat because it was very difficult for her to adapt to new tastes. Whereas, you know, I myself, there's so many things I, I didn't eat. And I was such a picky eater before I became vegan. Uh, that's actually, it took a long time for me to get the food repertoire that I have now and develop the new tastes that I have now. My husband's the same way. He grew up a very uh, picky eater. Are, do you have what you call, I mean, I've heard people call this, they're like a super taster, like everything has such a strong taste. <laughs> I'm not a super taster, but when I was a kid, I, I ate literally I think six things. And I didn't, until I moved to Texas, I didn't eat avocados or beans, yep. which is basically what I live on now. So yeah, it's, it's um, I'm not a super taster, I don't think, but that is a common thing among really picky eaters as well. Yeah. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about your background? Because I think I kind of interrupted you. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up really, really loving animals. I wanted to be a veterinarian. I, I worked with horses. Uh, I just, when I was a kid, I think I would have become vegetarian, except that I was such a ridiculously picky eater. And I think my parents were really afraid that I was, I was going to starve. So uh, I think that's, I think that's an obstacle for so many people that they manifest as having ethical concerns about vegetarianism or veganism when really they're just afraid that they would not be able to eat their favorite foods, or they're afraid they wouldn't like enough new foods to actually make a full diet. 
So I, I just curious, you obviously had a lot to say on this topic. Is that one of the reasons that you started your blog? Oh, about, about bivalves? Um, you know, veganism in general. Oh, but yeah. sentience. Um, yeah, I started, well, I, I was really interested in sentience as, I, I just see so many people talking about various different reasons uh, for their ethical standards. And for me, I always thought sentience was the most important thing in terms of whether or not any being or any, you know, in terms of moral consideration. And it is something that Peter Singer does get around to talking about in animal liberation, but I don't think anybody had really uh, quite put a name to it the way that I had, which is sentientism, which is the prioritization of sentience. And so that's, you know, I mean, I'm a utilitarian, which means that I take into account, you know, when I think about whether something's moral or immoral, whether it causes suffering or not to, or whether it causes pleasure or not to a sentient being. And I think that other people have different reasons why they have, you know, different ideas about their moral compass. So there's deontological reasoning, which is something different. That's where you want to actually have characteristics of a good person or you follow uh, rules or laws rather than actually considering whether any given action causes suffering or causes uh, pain or causes pleasure. So clearly you're approaching veganism from this, um, it's an ethical perspective. In other words, um, should we be causing suffering of animals? Yeah, I'm, I come at it from a utility perspective. And because of the kind of groups that I go around and I'm really heavily involved in effective altruism, uh, that, that movement also is about a third vegetarian or vegan and it's mostly people who also have a utilitarian view about animal suffering, such that if you know if you cause demand for animal products, that means that animals are going to suffer and die. But you know, in terms of utilitarianism, this is an interesting perspective. So Brian Tomasic and other people like Nick Cooney have talked about how not all animal product eating is equivalent, which is I think what a lot of vegans talk about. So one thing that many people have suggested is if you think about a meal of chicken or a meal of beef, you can eat beef 200 times before you kill a cow. Most people don't kill a whole cow in a lifetime or in a, in a, in a year of eating beef. Whereas chicken is a very much smaller animal. And so when you eat chicken, uh, you know, 90% of the animals we kill for food are, are chicken if you don't take into account fish. And so that's another thing that, that people talk about is that actually if you're trying to persuade somebody in a way that's going to reduce animal suffering, you should try to persuade them to give up eating chicken, fish, and eggs, which there's a really good uh, blog that you can link in this episode if you'd like, which is shows the number of animals killed per million calories in different animal category foods. So it's ironic that vegetarians eat eggs because eggs are actually more suffering intensive than beef. So what I have done, you know, with many people I know, is I said, if you think animal suffering is important, but you're not ready to go vegan, consider giving up chicken, eggs, and fish. And then in terms of the number of animals you kill per year, you're about 90% vegan. Interesting, except the only thing I would like to add to that, I mean, it, it just goes to show what a complicated topic it is. I mean, when people eat beef, they're only typically eating the same kinds of parts of the animal, right? So like the, 
you know, you were just talking about the liver and all those other things. Are those, in other words, if they're only eating like steak and that steak comes from the same part of the animal, is it, does it imply that more of those animals have to be killed to get to that kind of steak that they want? I don't actually know what the suffering per calorie was based on. I think it's based on the, the, the meat of the carcass. Um, okay. rather than the actual, like including all the organs, but I have right. to double check on that. But Brian has done these calculations and they've been, I see, I have to read that article. Widely. Okay. Yeah. And Nick Cooney mm-hmm. also talks about this. And so, uh, you know, there are vegans who convince other people to become vegan. I have convinced at least a whole family and then I think three or four other people to, uh, give up chicken. And so, you know, in terms of the number of animals per year saved, I've made probably the equivalent of like three vegans. But that's not a perspective that most vegans really endorse. So there are a lot of people like, you know, people who, are, who follow somebody like Gary Francione who say veganism is a moral baseline and you shouldn't endorse anything other than uh, total veganism. And I do understand that perspective, but I don't think that it's actually tenable. I think yeah. that in the future, really what we're going to see is there's going to be lab meat and then I think yep. that we're going to be able to encourage people to only eat lab meat. And that's going to be the end of animal agriculture. I don't think that the end of animal agriculture is going to be convincing <laughs> the majority of people or everyone, for example, to be vegan. And I used to do a podcast uh, with Ian McDonald in the UK called The Vegan Option. And we did a podcast on in vitro meat where I did a little bit of a debate with a vegan where he said he would prefer to wait a hundred years for everyone in the world to be vegan than he would for in 20 years, everybody to be eating in vitro meat. He actually thinks yeah. that in vitro meat is, is bad. And it was very difficult to pin him down morally on this. And most vegans say they wouldn't eat in vitro meat. So uh, that is actually what I think is the best hope for ending animal suffering rather than the vegan movement itself. I want to say that I agree with you too, but I also feel like there's this, um, you know, we could say the same thing about um, oil, right? Like, I think we should be moving on to other forms of, of like solar energy and wind energy, but you can see how the oil industry is like dug in and they've paid for lobbyists and they, they've kind of manipulated the system a little bit. I, I just hope that you're right. I really feel the same way that it is a great possibility and, and, and a great, it will help people uh, end suffering of animals to have lab meat. I just hope that it, it, it goes that smoothly. You could think about it sort of in the same way in order for us to stop using oil, if you think yeah. of oil as immoral, then you have to make solar efficient, yeah. cheap, and effective, something that people want to buy. The same thing with wind and the same thing with, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of pro-nuclear energy, which uh, also puts me at odds with most animal or environmental kind of activists. But in the same way, you have the people who are making in vitro meat, which has now been relabeled. And this is interesting for me as a disgust researcher. It's now been relabeled, quote, clean meat, because people want to avoid this kind of sci-fi scenario in their minds yes. when they think about it. Instead, think about what would meet that was never alive, that was never dirty, that never shit, whatever the case <laughs> is. Um, what would that be like? And I think that, um, you know, I, I, do, I do think that, that once that's cheap and affordable for everybody, that's what we're going to see. I did. I forgot to ask about the uh, parental guidance rating on your podcast. I will avoid that now. <laughs> oh, it's okay. We just have to, you know, there's some things that we do if there's is language. It's all, it's all good, though. <laughs> 
well, and since we're talking about this, uh, you know, you're this is really cool because I saw Steven Pinker uh, tweet recently about a rudicitarian, I don't even know how to say it, rudicitarian. Uh, his point was that if you go from two to one burgers a day, it's the same benefit to the environment and, and, and the cows if we go from one to zero. Yes. And then I think um, Pablo Stefferini tweeted something saying, actually, if you want to reduce the number of animals you eat, it's even better if you go from eating some chicken to, to no chicken in terms of the number of animals you save. So yeah. I think Steven Pinker, there was a new Matt Ridley piece. And I like anybody who sort of books their yeah. identity politics. Matt Ridley, who is anti-environmentalist, widely known as a sort of lukewarmer, who doesn't really think that... Uh, Global warming is as big a deal as, as people have said it is. A lot of people have argued with him about that. But who's widely touted as a conservative who says, actually, people in the future are going to say meat is murder. He's a meat eater. I've had dinner with him. But wow. uh, he cites Pinker. And Pinker says that the, the biggest moral revolution of our current time is going to be the revolution to morally appraise animals, to think that more animal um, morality towards animals is important. Ah. <sighs> That's encouraging. That's a, yeah. I think that's a, a sign we're on the right track. And these are two meat eaters saying that, so it's fascinating. Yeah, I also I listened to um, Sam Harris podcast. Um, I can't think of the name of it right now. I think it's called Waking Up. Waking Up. Yes, thank you. And he has talked recently about his desire to give up meat, just from the ethical standpoint of he doesn't feel like he could kill an animal, and so what right does he have to ask somebody else to do that for him? Yeah. I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective. Yeah, he um, was vegetarian for a while and then said some... Yeah. He, I mean, he's a very smart man, but he said the stupidest thing I've ever heard Sam Harris say, and that's, you know, some people yeah. have problems with things he says, is that uh, he wasn't getting enough protein because obviously there's <laughs> one amino acid that is more difficult to come by in vegetarian diets and all the other amino acids are fine, and that's lysine. You just eat a handful yeah. of pistachios and you're fine. And yeah. so um, I thought that was, but yeah, but he said that he was interested and he also did talk about um, bivalve veganism on his podcast saying that that was something that, that he would also uh, consider. And uh, I think that that's, I mean, he's, he's a very big deal in a lot of circles of people who consider morality in depth. And so I think that that would be a great, um, you know, yeah, a great role model. You know, Steven Pinker, for example, um, we interviewed him we got an email response from him on our vegan option podcast and he wouldn't tell us whether or not he was vegetarian, but um, I think these people, you know, people who are really big, intelligent thought leaders can make a big impact if they said, yeah, I actually gave up eating meat. I agree. And, and what, since we're on that topic, why don't we go into bivalve veganism? Can you describe a little bit about that for everybody and what it means? Sure. So as I said a moment ago, I think that sentience, is important. And sentience, to me, is the ability to be aware of oneself. And the ability to be aware of oneself often or is also encapsulated in the ability to suffer. And so how are suffering and pain different? Well, to be able to experience pain is something intuitively you might think you put your hand on a stove and then that moment before you actually are aware of the pain itself, you have started to experience pain but you only suffer when you have an awareness of that pain. And when people started thinking about becoming vegan, when veganism was defined, veganism was defined as avoiding any animal products 
to as great as an extent uh, possible. And the idea behind that was that animals can suffer and plants and fungi and other organisms uh, cannot suffer. But when animal kingdom and plant kingdom and fungi, when all of the different organisms were taxonomized, they were not taxonomized with regard to whether or not they could suffer. They were taxonomized based on other characteristics like the ability to move of their own volition or their ability to photosynthesize. None of these things were, were taxonomized with their ability to, to suffer. So it could be possible that we could discover a plant that suffers as much as an animal that we would decide morally not to eat, or we could find an animal that doesn't suffer. And that's the point that I'm making about bival veganism is that there are a small number of animals, non-human animals that I think don't have the capacity to suffer. And that's because, you know, I make an argument in my, in my blog that they don't really have the neural hardware to suffer, that they don't move away from pain. Therefore, there's no adaptive reason for them to experience pain. And it, when I make this point, I'm also saying that we should be able to, as vegans, be able to distinguish between organisms that suffer and that don't suffer. Because to me, as, as many other people, it's actually the suffering that's important rather than not eating anything from the kingdom animalia, which is an arbitrary rule that tends to work pretty well, but that I think has a few exceptions. So you're saying if, if somebody came out tomorrow and said, um, broccoli suffers when you chop it, it would probably be something a lot of vegans would want to avoid. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, even more likely would be something where we would, you know, we could go to an alien planet and we would see organisms that seemed by all intents and purposes to be plants. You know, they photosynthesize, they don't move. But for example, they had some kind of complex culture, complex language. Just because we would define those things as plants doesn't mean that we would eat them. And so I think that we have to consider things from the basis of sentience. Is, is an organism sentient? And that is, is where we should draw the line. And unlike most vegans who draw the line, you know, wherever they, wherever they draw the line, at the, at the entire kingdom animalia, I draw the line in a somewhat uh, different place. So sponges, for example, are actually technically animals, but they are similar to bivalves, at least sessile. Sessile means not motile, means that they don't move. So sponges don't move. And I don't know any vegan who would protest at an art supply shop that was selling sea sponges because I think even the most hardcore vegans who abide by this law that all the kingdom animalia is important not to use wouldn't know that a sea sponge is morally important and wouldn't think to protest a sea sponge being used, for example. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying then uh, a muscle, for example, is something that is sessile, it doesn't move on its own, and uh, doesn't experience, uh, is also not sentient, so it doesn't experience pain, and therefore should be on the list of things that we can eat as a vegan? Yes, I think so. So I think that uh, sessile bivalves, especially, that's mussels and oysters. And there are river mussels who move, but ocean oysters, I mean, ocean, ocean mussels, especially, and we'll talk about how they're farmed in a minute, but they, they don't move. They can open and close their shells. And they have uh, six basal ganglia, and they actually are not, you know, what's called encephalized. So there's no aggregation of their neurons in one place. And even in C. elegans, which is a, 
a worm that is a common biological model. It has a, a sort of rudimentary brain. Its neurons are aggregated in one place, whereas you don't see that in, in mussels and oysters. So I've described mussels and oysters as sort of like a, a disembodied finger. So your finger has neurons, but there's no there there. There's no place for the sensation of pain to be aggregated into the experience of suffering. And therefore, I, I believe that they don't uh, suffer. Uh, so there has been, and another reason why I think that they don't really experience uh, pain is because they can't move away from it. So if you were to ask a vegan, why don't plants feel pain? They might say, well, plants don't move. Uh, mm. It's not you know, Venus flytraps and things like that can move, but plants generally don't move in any kind of a fast way. And if you can't escape pain, there's really no reason to experience pain. So the only reason that animals move is, is to get away from bodily injury. And in the case of organisms that don't move, it, it would just be costly for them to experience pain. It would be a cost with, with no benefit because pain is cognitively costly. You have to have some degree of neurons to be able to experience it but it's also distracting from normal bodily functions if you experience pain your heart rate goes up you have this uh, immune system response and organisms that can't escape pain there's nothing for them to do really and so what about um mussels do you eat them i do eat them i do yeah and i eat them i i'm, I'm right now i'm in uh central central part of the united states so there is no fresh <laughs> But um, before I left England, I had a plate of oysters. Um, So yeah, I I eat mussels or oysters probably about three times a month. Uh, I I noticed on your site that you uh, talk about um, mussels and oysters having some health benefits. Could you talk about that? Sure. So it's very interesting. (laughs) Actually, uh, there's this guy named Joel Marks, who's a philosopher, and he said, oh, there's evidence for a god because Oysters and mussels have the exact nutrients that a vegan diet has the most difficulty <laughs> finding. <laughs> but, um, uh, so oysters and mussels have a, a few trace minerals. So the big thing that we know as vegans that we have to supplement is B12. There's a lot of B12 in, in oysters and mussels. There's also some other things like zinc and selenium. And uh, people disagree about whether or not cholesterol is an essential nutrient. But oysters and mussels also have... Um, cholesterol, and they have something called heme iron, which is the the kind of iron that you cannot find in plant foods and you can only find in animal foods, which while you can obviously get enough iron on a vegan diet, especially if you eat leafy greens, heme iron is more easily and readily absorbed than uh, non-heme iron. So I, I kind of make this case that especially for for people who are thinking, well, I'd like to be vegan, but I don't want to be worried about taking supplements or whatever, uh, or I am I'm concerned about some nutrients that we don't know are important yet, for example, that it might actually be a good idea to eat oysters and mussels uh, as a kind of just-in-case, because they do have all of these animal nutrients without, in, in my view, causing any suffering. Okay, so that leads me to a question. And that is, do you think there's any connection between the type of people like if there was a stereotype of the kind of person who chooses a vegan diet, like, and you also talk about disgust? I mean, is there a chance that people are it's like a self selecting crowd that we're vegan, and maybe there's a little bit of disgust for certain things, and therefore, they're maybe not as interested in eating muscles? I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have been on lots and lots of vegetarian forums and Facebook <laughs> groups and things like that where all kinds of 
some good criticisms and some terrible criticisms are leveled against me and my claims. And one very funny criticism was, why would I want to eat salty boogers? <laughs> As to why would I not want to eat oysters and mussels? You know, yes. so people think they're disgusting. And seafood is actually something that a lot of people find disgusting. Fish is something that people often um, find disgusting or unpalatable or as a taboo food. So I actually have, you know, said in the blog that I don't think that this is going to be a, you know, massive movement. Although I have been surprised among effective altruists, people who think similarly to me, who are also utilitarian, a lot of people have said, well, I didn't like them. I wasn't crazy about them at first, but now I eat them two or three times a month like you do. And I feel like this is actually going to help me stay vegan because I'm not going to be worried that that I'm somehow not getting something nutritionally, whether or not that's, um, you know, just a placebo effect or not. What about the ethical side of it? Like, you know, like you talk about bycatch related to shrimp, like um, 98%, there's like a 98% bycatch rate. In other words, there's a lot of other fish that are killed in the process of farming shrimp. Is the same thing true for mussels and oysters? Mussels and oysters basically filter out the water and if anything, they're actually very, very good for the environment, and they there's no bycatch involved. Mm. So, in terms of shrimp, for example, I think shrimp may or may not be sentient. I think the the jury is still out. You know, they they seem to actually they move. Obviously, they seem to be aware of um, you know if you if you injure a, a shrimp's antennae, they will clean it. They spend some time uh, looking at it. But if you eat farmed shrimp. What they do is they take trash fish and they grind them up and shrimp are actually fed other fish. There's a lot of fish farming that is involved you know, involved in, um, in eating other fish. So if you eat a fish that's been farmed this way, um, for example, shrimp, then you are actually eating a lot of other fish in the process. Hmm. You're not eating just that one shrimp. And some people don't know this, but a third of all small fish caught in the world are actually fed to egg-laying hens uh, in order to increase the omega-3 content of their eggs. So when you're eating eggs, you're not just eating eggs, you're also eating fish a lot of the time. And so this, this, the process by which you eat animals is also involved in their, in their production. And so with mussels and oysters, what they do is they collect the spat, which is their, their gametes, their sperm and eggs. They put them on a, a rope and then they just grow. They just put them out in the water column and what happens with mussels and oysters is they often put them near fish farms because they actually filter out all of the nitrogen uh, from the water. So they actually make water cleaner. Wow. So that's the thing that you'd want to have, uh, you know, in all water, right? Like, uh, I know, like, we live near a lake and they have these signs, something about uh, they don't want zebra oysters or mussels or something like that. Yeah, those because what happens is they they they're kind of um, muscles will often aggregate around sewage, for example, because they okay. they and they and they that's why they they put them around fish farms. So what they do is they take something inedible, which is yeah. fish poo, and they make it <laughs> edible. Um, and that's another reason why people find them find them gross is because they do eat this this gross stuff, but they don't eat other animals. And what you're ideally supposed to do when you farm oysters is to fast them before you harvest them. So they don't eat for uh, a few days before they're actually eaten by people, which means that they're completely cleaned out of anything that they might have been digesting. Well, you know, you could say the same thing about mushrooms. Like they're kind of, you know, (laughs) 
they're in the, the dark, deep uh, areas eating kind of disgusting things, right? Yeah, they, they, feed, off, they feed off poo. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So you could say, you could absolutely say the same thing. And, there, you know, people, this is one of the kind of ideas about permaculture and vegan farming, which I'm not super familiar with. But obviously, you can farm plants well without animal manure. But people often use animal manure to, to grow plants. And I don't, I, there's no vegan that I know who has successfully been able to, to only eat vegan produce, which is produce that's not grown on animal manure. Wow, that's pretty huge to think about. I, I just feel like um, we just scratch the surface when we talk about veganism. And I feel like some people are very dogmatic in their view of, of, of veganism. And as a result, it's like it brings up all these topics like, uh, you know, um, that you, you're eating this soybean, but how many mice were killed in the farming of that? Uh, of that yeah. soybean. You know, I, I just feel like, of course, we want to reduce animal suffering, but uh, it's impossible to be 100% is what I think. Yeah. And, and Brian Tomasic in his, you know, number of animals killed per calorie also includes grains and, and fruits and shows in his calculation that uh, obviously when you're eating uh, grains and, and vegetables, you're also um, killing animals incidentally and shows the deaths per calorie for these foods as well, showing that there's deaths per calorie for all foods, including um, uh, dairy, uh, sorry, grains. Um, but he shows that dairy is actually only twice as bad as grain. So, I mean, this is a, f a funny way of putting it, but if you think about eating dairy is like eating two slices of bread instead of one slice of bread. Now, a vegan would never say, I should limit my intake of plant products or crops because I want to reduce the number of animals that suffer, vegans say, no, it's okay to eat as much as you want as long as you're eating plant foods, not realizing that obviously when you eat more, you're also going to have that, that, same, that same problem, that you're increasing the number of animals that are killed incidentally in the production of crops, which is all to say that obviously we can't be perfect. And right. so I just think it, it makes sense to try and think about what is the, what is the way that we can eat as vegans that is going to be most attractive to other people, which makes people, other people think, you know, that actually looks totally doable. And this person looks happy, healthy, and sane. I really want to emulate that person. But, <laughs> also, like <laughs> <laughs> but, but also a way that makes, you know, that is good for our, our mental health and makes us, you know, icons and, and people that other people want to emulate. I so much agree with that because I just feel like there's, got to be a level of flexibility to ve uh, to veganism that sometimes feels like it's not necessarily there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I was in a three-year relationship with probably the most hardcore vegan I've ever met. And <laughs> I was very attracted to his moral virtue. I'm attracted to moral virtue. I think everybody is. And I thought he was, a, you know, I still think he's a wonderful uh, person. And we did the vegan option um, together. But um, I think I came home from a trip and I said, uh, I was at the airport and there was illegal seafood and I ate a plate of mussels. And he said, we do a podcast called The Vegan Option, not The Buy Raw Vegan Option. <laughs> <laughs> and so I stopped uh, because it was funny. Even on the podcast, I think it was like our first episode. Uh, it was like a bit of a confessional. I was like, well, you know, I was taking care of my sick grandmother and there was this pizza that was out for five days and no one was going to eat it. And I finished it and it had cheese on it. <laughs> And it's just this, this kind of thing that, that I felt compelled to do. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I feel like um, food waste is also an ethical issue as well. So for example, if I'm at a restaurant and I order a salad without cheese and it arrives to, to my table with cheese, I know if I send that salad back, they are going to throw it out. I think yeah. they have some law. They have to do that or something. I don't there's know. Really no. Yeah, there's if, as, if the demand has been created and I'm an economic vegan. So to me, it's important not to create demand for animal products. Whether or not yeah. I actually eat animal products is is a matter of purity, which is something I don't concern myself with. So the same, I'm the same way as you. Um, one time I was really horrified. I ordered a, I was at a fast food restaurant in Atlanta and I ordered something just with hummus and they got my order completely wrong mm. and they made me a lamb gyro. <laughs> <gasps> wow. And I said, I can't, I mean, even if I, I just can't, yeah. I could never eat lamb again. And no. I said, I can't eat that. And I just watched them throw it away. And I thought it would have been the same if I had eaten it, if I could bring myself to, it would have been the same. I know that is uh, the, that I, I could not eat meat. And, and honestly, I, I wouldn't eat the cheese that's on the salad either. I just wouldn't have them. I probably would try to shuffle the side as much of the cheese as possible and maybe yeah. take it home and feed it to my dogs or something. I don't know. But yeah, I think people do overestimate the problem with food waste uh, because there is actually more food being produced. It's, it's, it's obviously a matter of distribution. So I don't feel like I'm contributing to people starving when I don't eat food. And I don't really feel bad when food is wasted. There's a, there's a waste to convenience trade-off, which I won't go into um, terribly now because uh, you know, obviously a lot of food is, is thrown out. But I do think that people who are freegan and who eat things that are going to be thrown out, I think those people are vegan. I don't think that there's any problem with that. Uh, so you said you're an economic vegan. What does that mean again? That just means that I, I don't create demand for, for animal products. And uh, so, you know, if, if something is left out um, that, that isn't vegan, then I have, you know, I have Tupperware at work, for example. If we have like a big luncheon and people don't finish the food, um, I will take whatever and it is left over, whether it's vegan or not, and put it in my Tupperware and, you know, feed it to my housemates or take it home and eat it myself. Yes. So I don't really have a... Uh, it's, as long as I'm not contributing economically to animal agriculture, I'm I'm happy with that, and that's why in vitro meat to me is is fine and is vegan yes. because it actually doesn't contribute to animal suffering. And it's not that far off the. I mean, I think I've read even by as, as soon as 2020, it's going to be around. I think it's really great that Memphis Meats is going to make chicken first because, I, as I said before, uh, yes. nine billion chickens in the United States are killed. They're the vast majority of animals that we eat, and they're sentient, and they're much smarter than we even can understand. There's so many things that chickens can do that we don't understand. And I think it's just such a, a tragedy that so many of them are killed in such a brutal way. And if we have in vitro chicken meat, if we could have the number of chickens people eat, it would just be amazing in terms of how much suffering we would reduce. Yeah. What are your thoughts on honey? I'm just curious. I think <laughs> I can't actually find, bring myself to, to care much about honey either. I, I feel the same way. I, I think I listened to a little bit of your, of your podcast about yeah. that. Um, the bees don't know that you're eating their honey. And also there, there is a, a symbiotic relationship yeah. between the bee and, and the beekeeper. I think it's good that people uh, keep bees because they're and, and also this is another thing when you eat crops for example a lot of these crops are fertilized by bees so there's these commercial beekeepers and what they do yes. is they have a truck full of bees and they drive around from place to place and they let their bees fertilize things and if you don't want bees to work for you then you have to stop eating cherries and almonds as well 
because yes. they're fertilized by bees and by commercial beekeepers. And I don't think people are necessarily prepared uh, to do that. Everybody has to draw a line somewhere. And for me, if I'm going to eat bee-pollinated crops, I'm also going to eat honey. Oh, that's such an interesting point. So what you're saying is if you're, you know, going to fall on the sword on the topic of uh, honey, you really, there's a lot of crops you shouldn't be eating as well because they're supported by a bee industry. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, it's, it's very funny in terms of disgust, how people try to leverage disgust in order to make people, turn people off of otherwise, you know, delicious foods. So people have called honey bee vomit. And oh. it is. Right? Yes, it is. Or like it is. they call eggs hen menstruation or hen yes. which I think is really cute. Or they talk about all the pus in milk. And so these are ways that people try to turn people off of, of non-vegan foods. And I think it works to some small extent. Um, yeah. But but bee vomit, uh, bee vomit's delicious. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really a natural sweetener. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's it's way better than something like agave. Yeah, it, that's what basically just syrup. I I, th- I don't have a problem with people who avoid. If you avoid honey, that's fine. I just think that oftentimes avoiding honey uh, makes you look to non-vegan people who otherwise might be sensitive to your message. I was somebody who was super super strict when I started. I was very yeah. strict for at least three or four years, and I didn't convince anybody of my position in that time. Uh, and, um, I just think that I've, I'm much more compelling as an advocate now that I've said you know what, I actually care about suffering. Do you care about suffering? Then you can change your behavior and limit the amount of suffering that you cause with your consumption or with your economic behavior. And people have even told me when you first went vegan, I thought you were nuts, but now you make a lot of sense to me. So that, that is as, as may be, there are some obviously very charismatic vegans who are very strict, but I think that that's more unusual. There are times I wonder if we need a new word, but I really like the word vegan. It's nice and short. I I guess uh, is one of the ideas that we 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 are out there helping to redefine what vegan means, or or do we try to come up with a new word? Uh, I mean, I think I think sentientist is a is a fine word for kind of what I am and what other people have have glommed onto. I think that um, reducitarian, vegetarian, it's just very difficult. Obviously, uh, if what you're if you are evaluating things on a case-by-case basis and you decide that honey actually doesn't cause suffering, uh, but you eat honey, then you know, you're not adhering to the letter of veganism, but you are adhering to the spirit of veganism. And there's always going to be people who say, you are not abiding by our rules, therefore you're chucked out of our in-group. People define yeah. our in-group however they want. Right. And uh, you know, one time there was a discussion about my bivalve post on a, on a vegan and actually on a vegetarian forum. And this guy said, oh, do you eat mussels? And I said, yes. And he kicked me off the forum, even though I was discussing <laughs> my own blog with people there uh. in a totally polite way. And I said, you know, I tweeted, I said, people who eat eggs are causing a hundred times more suffering than I'm causing. And yet you allow them on to your forum because they adhere to your completely arbitrary uh, food rules which your food rules are not based on what causes the most suffering. Your food rules are based on uh, eggs and milk are somehow okay for no obvious reason because they they don't they're not the actual flesh of an animal. They're merely the product of the animal. And I think that it's fine to as people who try to limit the amount of suffering they cause animals uh, to as great extent as possible. I, I'm fine with these people calling themselves vegan, but um, there's always going to be infighting on that topic. 
Yeah, my theory is like uh, on a day to day basis, I am I I'm what I consider myself ninety to ninety five percent vegan, in that you know if I if you and I went out to a restaurant today and they had a black bean burger, I am not going to ask him if that bun has eggs in it. I just yeah just I just don't I don't I'm not going to uh, be that person and. Um, I, that's why I call myself between 90 and 95% vegan. Also, if I was in New Orleans, I would definitely order beignet. I, I just want to experience the world in a way. I wouldn't eat the meat that they would serve, but I definitely would. If I'm in France, I'm going to have a croissant. I just, I want to experience the world that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's, that's legitimate. I also think that, um, you know, there are vegans I know who avoid things like L-cysteine. I had a huge discussion with um, my my vegan the vegan boyfriend that I had about uh-huh. L-cysteine because it's I don't on the even know what that is L-cysteine is a dough softener that is at ten parts per million that they put in for example Einstein Brothers bagels and it comes from one of three sources uh, human hair <laughs> duck feathers or it's produced uh, synthetically and you can eat bagels every day of your life and never kill a duck um, and I, I think it's important when people are considering you know, where they're going to cut corners in terms of, of, you know, whatever cheating or not being strictly vegan um, to consider the amount of of suffering that it causes. I'm actually very strict generally about not eating eggs, um, although I don't actually ask about eggs in buns, but I do ask about eggs in in veggie burgers. But I'm not that strict about dairy or butter because it causes, as I told you, um, just a small amount more suffering than eating plant foods. And, uh, you know, I, well, I think the dairy industry is, is horrible. I know that you actually have to drink milk for years and years before you actually, uh, you know, a dairy cow produces the most calories of any other, um, farmed animal. I mean, it's, um, I just feel like it's a conversation we could carry on for a long time because I, I really am enjoying this. I feel like, um, I've, I've needed a conversation like this for a while and I, I'm usually uh, around people who are just kind of either dogmatic or, you know, I, I don't know. I, I enjoy it. I think this is really important that people can understand that they can call themselves vegan. They can be a part of the movement and they don't have to be like this dogmatic person about it either. Yeah, I think that's super important. And I think that, you know, in terms of in the effective altruism movement, there are a lot of people who are advocating for animals. There are a lot of people, for example, I'm on a grant committee for animal charity evaluators where we make grants to people who are going to uh, make the biggest difference in terms of figuring out what makes people vegetarian, in terms of figuring out how to avoid activist burnout, in terms of figuring out how we're going to be able to sell in vitro meat to people in a way that makes it seem, um, you know, natural, healthy, like the optimal thing that that people would want to eat. And these are the kinds of issues that that I think are important. Um, Another thing that that just in in terms of effective altruism and and non-human animals, if you donate to animal charities, um, if you donate $10 to an animal charity, you'll make someone vegetarian or at least two or three people vegetarian for about three months. And so this is something else that the vegans should consider, not only their own personal purity, but if you were to give 10% of your income to somewhere like Humane League or Vegan Outreach, you would actually not just be one vegan, you could be like 100 vegans or 500 vegans, right? You could be making many, many more vegans. And so I know a few people, and, and I know some vegans find this pretty much sociopathic, but I know a lot of people who agree with my message that animal suffering is important. And they say, well, I don't want to give up meat. So instead, I'm going to donate $500 a year to vegan outreach. And that way I make 50 vegans and I don't have to be vegan myself. And while I don't think that that's, it sounds like buying indulgences, right? It's (laughs) terrible. But those people are actually 
equivalent to 50 vegans. (laughs) Wow. I love that. That's a great plan. Yeah. So I, so people that I know who are like, you know, Diana, I really agree with your message, but I don't want to, I'll just say, stop eating chicken. If you could stop eating eggs and fish, that would also be great. And donate money to vegan outreach. Wow. Then you're making a big difference in the world. I, I think that I think that I'm making a bigger difference than when I told people now try being vegan every day for a week and then try to eat lunch vegan every day for a week and then eventually be fully vegan. Um, I think that very few people were convinced by that particular argument. So what do you think is the best approach to like you just went cold turkey, right? So what what are what is the best approach to going I, I vegan? I was never convinced by slaughterhouse videos. I was never convinced by emotional appeals. It was Peter Singer's really rational, dispassionate argument uh, yeah. that convinced me. I think everybody has a soft spot, a way that they would be uh, convinced. When I talk to people about animal suffering, often cats and dogs are a really good touchstone for people, you know, to say, well, pigs are really smart. Cows are really smart. Chickens are smarter than you might think. And uh, these animals suffered. Do you want to limit the amount of suffering that you cause? Or don't you think that morality is about limiting suffering? Not everyone is compelled by that particular argument. But I do think that these kinds of changes don't occur in a vacuum. So Gary Francione, for example, says that vegan is the moral baseline. But every vegan I know started off saying that fur was immoral and then became vegetarian and then became vegan other than me. I was, I had fur-lined boots the day that I went vegan that I eventually got rid of because I felt too weird wearing them, even though they were already bought. Um, so I think that these, you know, if you get somebody to say, okay, I'm going to give up chicken because I think animal suffering is important, then part of their identity is now I'm a person who cares about animal suffering, and they're going to think about other ways to do that in their own time. So I think that first domino, that first changing of attitudes. You know, now everybody tends to think that fur is immoral, that keeping orcas in captivity is immoral, that animal testing has become a really big thing that people think is immoral. And some people say, well, you know, people are never going to actually go further. I actually think that these are all, you know, the first dominoes that fall. And then eventually these other attitudes change as well. Oh, I love it. And I, again, I could talk with you all about this all day long, but I feel like uh, just for the uh, sake of time and people uh, being able to digest this part of the conversation, uh, maybe you'll, you'll have to come back on the show and we can go even further. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So I love to ask a couple of questions at the end of the interview, just so people can get an idea of you personally. Are you, are you game? I'm totally game. Okay. What's, what's one food item that you can't live without? Avocados. Oh, they're the best. And you, you basically said originally you didn't like them, but now you do, huh? I, now, I mean, I eat, I literally eat two or three a day. <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite way to eat them? Like, do you do the toast or what, what's your favorite? I, I put a tortilla in a toaster and then I just eat them. I usually eat them covered in seeds. It's, it's, I mean, nature's perfect food. That covered with seeds and then I eat dark chocolate with almond butter. That's, you know, when I'm at work, what I basically live on. And I've looked at the calculation of the, you know, the nutrient content. Dark chocolate has got all of the minerals you need. Avocados yeah. have all the fat you need. The, yeah. the, the nuts and things like that have a lot of protein. And yeah, I think that um, how I eat, even though it's very simple and usually doesn't involve any cooking, it hey, works. I think that sounds like a beautiful diet. <laughs> nuts, <laughs> chocolate, and, <laughs> and avocados. <laughs> okay. If you could listen to only one band the rest of your life, who would it be? <laughs> <laughs> or group or, or singer yeah or singer um oh man i i 
Um, I guess something like really chilled out that I could listen to forever would probably be Thievery Corporation. Yeah. Could you say it again? I'm sorry. It kind of went out. Thievery Thievery Corporation. I think they're Brazilian. Um, But yeah, I listen. People don't believe me when I say this. I listen to a lot of gangster rap. (laughs) Do you really? Yes. (laughs) I love, well, Trina, Trina has been around for a long time, but Trina is my favorite rapper. Yeah. (laughs) That's so interesting. You know, I guess it can really get you going if that's good for (laughs) It's very good, yeah, in terms of um, making you feel good about yourself and making you feel up. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, what inspires you? What inspires me, uh, what motivates me is the idea that I can make a difference and reduce the amount of suffering in the world, whether it be non-human animals or human suffering. And I know that I myself have been inspired by many people to think the way that I do. So the idea that you know, I might inspire other people it inspires me as well. I love that. Okay, so how can people find you online? I am at Sentientist on Twitter. And I also have a normal academic website, which is dianafleischman.com. But that's also linked in my uh, Twitter profile. Wonderful, Diana. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much. I had a great time too. Thanks to Diana Fleischman for being my guest on today's episode of the Namely Marley podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, including links of the things that we talked about and other important notes, just head over to namelymarley.com forward slash podcast. Hey, you know, I hope you're loving the Namely Marley podcast. Please consider supporting the show by heading over to iTunes or Stitcher and leaving a review. You can also share this episode with your friends and family on social media. You can also write about it on your own blog or podcast. All of these are really helpful and they help the show out tremendously. So until next time, may health and happiness come your way today.